Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. There is such a pertinence to having a palliative care skill set for all emergency physicians. You have to establish rapport, give advice, and not get into a power struggle with people who are in a crisis. The real risks to resuscitation in the case that we've talked about here are around incomplete recovery. It was 1995, and after a 13-hour overnight train ride, I was sitting at a rooftop restaurant in Varanasi, India, enjoying breakfast with my wife. We were a few hundred meters from the famous and deeply spiritual Ganges River, whose shores were strewn with burning ghats, open fire pits housing burning bodies. The stench of burning protein mixed with the million smells of the city drifted by our table, and as I peered out toward the river, I noticed a group of wheelchair-bound older folks on the neighboring rooftop laughing. I turned to the waiter, and I asked what was going on there. He told me that those people were happy, because they all knew that no matter when they die, they'll die on the shores of the Ganges and enter the afterlife in the best possible way. You see... This was the Western equivalent of a nursing home. Those people, the waiter told me, were the luckiest old folks in the world. Now fast forward to 2015 on a busy overnight shift in the ED, where you have no prior knowledge of a crashing patient, it's a noisy, chaotic environment, you're time pressured, and there's variable access to records, to family, and to advanced directives. The patient's a cachectic 90-year-old sent from the local nursing home. The EMS told you that she's a full code. This is almost always an uncomfortable situation, to say the least. Now, most of us in North America live in cultures that almost never talk about death and dying. And medical progress has led the way to a shift in the culture of dying, in which death has been medicalized. While most people wish to die at home, every decade has seen an increase in the proportion of deaths that occur in hospital. Death is often seen as a failure to keep people alive rather than a natural, dignified end to life. This is really at odds with what a lot of people actually want at their end of their lives. 70% of hospitalized Canadian elderly say they prefer comfort measures as opposed to life-prolonging treatment, yet as many as two-thirds of these patients are admitted to ICUs. Why is this happening, you may ask? Well, most of us are not well prepared for death in our EDs, and we should be. There's no second chance when it comes to a bad death like there is if you screw up a central line, for example. So you need the skills to do it right the first time. You know, life is like a story, and we all know that good stories need a good ending. To recognize when comfort measures and compassion are what will be best for our patients is just as important as knowing when to intervene and treat aggressively. Emerge docs should be able to recognize the symptoms and patterns that are common in the last hours to days of life if they're going to provide good, high-quality, end-of-life care that patients deserve. For me, until I researched this topic, I had pretty much no clue how to manage dying patients and their families in the ED besides the usual life-saving medical treatments. I've had many an embarrassing situation, which I hope never to repeat. Perhaps you have too. So, with the help of Dr. Howard Evans, a veteran eMERGE doc with over 25 years of experience who speaks at national conferences on end-of-life issues, Dr. Paul Miller, an eMERGE doc who also runs a palliative care unit, and Dr. Shauna McLaughlin, who's the track chair at the palliative stream at the CAPE conference here in Edmonton where we're doing the recording, will help you to learn the skills you need to assess dying patients appropriately, communicate with their families effectively, manage end-of-life symptoms with confidence, and much, much more. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Dr. Paul Miller. Paul, welcome. Thanks, Anton. I'm glad you're doing this. Dr. Shauna McLaughlin, welcome. Thanks, Anton. This is a privilege. And welcome back, Dr. Ovens. Thanks, Anton. It's a great panel you've put together, and I'm very happy to be here on a very important topic today. Great. 
For those of you who have, uh, who have listened to our Ebola podcast, you're already familiar with Dr. Ovens. Dr. McLaughlin, could you tell us a little bit about your professional background? Certainly, Anton. I am a full-time emergency physician. I work between the Pediatric Emergency Department and the Adult Emergency Department at the University and Stollery sites here in Edmonton. In addition to that, I spend about a, an additional third of my time on the Pediatric Palliative Care Service, um, and I've been a member of that team for about five years now, delivering palliative care to children and their families, both in our own city and in our catchment area. Okay, wonderful. And Dr. Miller? I, too, am a full-time eMERGE physician uh, on faculty at McMaster and have contributed to palliative care largely through uh, helping them reestablish an inpatient tertiary-level acute palliative unit in the cancer center, largely in response to many of the scenarios that I think we're going to talk about today, but but that also the listeners will see all the time of patients coming through the eMERGE and, in my opinion, not getting the level and type of access to palliative care that they need. Okay, so let's dive into this very important topic with a case. An 87-year-old male with advanced dementia comes into your teaching hospital from the nursing home with aspiration pneumonia, he's in respiratory failure, and in septic shock. Your resident sees the patient and tells you that he anticipates that he needs to be intubated to stay alive. He's a, quote, full code based on a five-year-old document that comes with him from the nursing home. Luck has it that there's no family around to discuss this with. So, Dr. Ovens, if a patient is immediately crashing and you don't have access to an up- up-to-date advanced directive or the family, and you feel that probably the patient should not be DNR, what tips can you give our listeners in terms of managing that kind of situation? I like to uh, avoid being put in a corner and having to make a snap all or nothing decision in these situations. In other situations, we do have to do that. So here I like to buy time by perhaps providing some initial supportive measures and seeing what the response is, giving a fluid bolus, applying high flow oxygen, sometimes even going to bagging or uh, or non-invasive ventilation, watching keenly to see whether the patient continues to deteriorate or starts to stabilize at all as a prognostic indicator for this patient, as well trying to get simultaneously, sometimes using other resources such as the nurses or or your house staff, to get more information about this patient. Not just what their code status is, but what's their life like at baseline? Do they talk? Do they eat? Do they recognize visitors? Do they have visitors? Sometimes a quick call to the next of kin or to the nursing home can fill in some of these blanks. Then within just a few minutes, sometimes 10 minutes, you have a trend line that's being established that suggests to you that this is perhaps salvageable or that this patient's really actively trying to die and you have a little bit more information about their baseline and you can make an informed decision about what you want to do. So temporizing is key in these kinds of situations. What happens if the patient then has an arrhythmia and crashes? If they progress to a full code during this situation. For instance, if they have an arrhythmia, I would do an appropriate brief cardiac arrest response. Maybe if they're fibrillating, defibrillate them once or twice and see how they respond. If they were in a much uh, poor prognosis rhythm, such as uh, an agonal rhythm, I would probably just call it at that. Because if you put all the facts together. You've given us somebody who lives in a long-term care facility, very poor protoplasm to start, very severe illness, lack of response to initial resuscitation. That's no longer a salvageable situation. I would agree, Dr. Evans. That sounds um, very similar to what the practice would be at at my institution and by myself. I think you um, highlighted that prognostically, we know that we have a very frail elderly gentleman who has a number of negative prognostic factors, the sepsis. Um, and you touched on, is he able to do his own activities of daily living? How many hospitalizations or what his other burden of medical illness may be and what his actual functionality is? And those are all key things that we would be looking to address to know which direction we should take the resuscitation. You know, Dr. Evans, you had mentioned uh, possibly using non-invasive ventilation or BiPAP uh, for this kind of patient. You know, how invasive is invasive? I think that 
that considering a really invasive, uh, meaning endotracheal intubation approach in a patient like this is also fraught with a bunch of complications and is potentially dangerous in and of itself. And I think that we need to bear that in mind. The sedation that would be required, the post-intubation hypotension that we're bound to see, it's a dangerous intervention. Could it prolong the dying process in this case? I'm, I'm sure it probably could. But it's not something that I would leap to as being the one solution, the definitive solution here, because in fact, it may be not a solution at all. I would say that some of the rules that, that I tend to use with using BiPAP, I also uh, reconsider in cases like this. So levels of consciousness play less uh, of a factor for me. Uh, the diagnosis of pneumonia would ordinarily not be one that I might leap to to put on a uh, BiPAP onto a different patient. But in a case like this, if I thought it was about temporizing, buying me some time to further explore and to find that uh, pattern that Howard is talking about, then then absolutely I would use it here. Dr. Evans, I really agree with everything you stated with regards to uh, temporizing for resuscitation. One of the things I found to be particularly helpful is that we need to engage all of those members of our team that are participatory in what it is that we're trying to do. So I commonly state that the nurses and the respiratory therapists who um, sit at the bedside of our patients, they really are the barometer for the system. And they feel, they often feel discomfort if we are doing things that seem to be too invasive or too aggressive um, before we might, as medical personnel, identify that ourselves. Um, so I think thinking out loud becomes very important and being able to articulate the fact that we are looking to try to secure further information to make the best decision for this patient um, and that we are trying to temporize and trying to see which way or how receptive to the resuscitative effort this patient is going to be for us to make a decision. So I think maybe to summarize, it's just ensuring that we've informed all of the individuals in our team, uh, what our plan is with regards to proceeding with a patient in a difficult circumstance. I think Anton was also trying to tease out the comfort-discomfort risk-benefit ratio. And for me, in many of these cases, I'll begin a trial. How people are going to respond is hard to anticipate. Some people will, before you put the mask on, you think they won't tolerate it, and then you put the mask on and they're fine. They may even relax with the improvement in oxygenation, and other people are very uncomfortable or they don't understand it, they have to be held down, and you realize that you're going down a slippery slope and you say, time out, maybe we want to move back. But you have to kind of have a trial approach to some of these things to see just how they're going to affect the patient. Absolutely. Let's continue with the case here. Suddenly the family shows up while you're in the midst of trying to deal with this very difficult situation. Your resident says to the family, quote, do you want us to do everything? Do you want us to stick a tube down his throat to breathe for him, shock his heart with electricity, and break his ribs by doing CPR if his heart stops? The family appears shocked and responds, of course we want you to do everything, and an argument ensues. The resident reports to you and tells you that this family is being unreasonable and that it's ridiculous that they want their relative intubated, and now the family's enraged. Dr. Evans, how are you going to, A, handle the situation with the family, and B, handle the situation with the resident? So the family uh, is the first priority here, and uh, education can, can wait a, f a moment, and you know, the residents made a couple of, in my, my opinion, errors already in his approach to the family and then his response to their initial response. And in general, I think we should start by listening and establishing rapport with the family, then giving them some advice, and then listening to what they think about all this. And ultimately, especially in a crisis situation, avoiding a power struggle at all costs. This sounds like a situation which is going to be time-consuming and difficult, but I'd like to tell you a little story that occurred to me not too long ago that shows how rapidly you can save a situation like this with the right intervention. I was home in bed one night when my cell phone rang. It was about 11.30. I was just falling asleep, and it was a, a friend, acquaintance of mine, and his first question was, Howard, are you in the hospital? I said, no, I'm home in bed. What's what's happening? And uh, the story that came out was that he was uh, in the hospital with his extended family. 
visiting an uncle who was quite ill and that the medical resident who was attending had approached the family to discuss the role of intensive care unit transfer in their relative's care and that things had become very uncomfortable and that there was an argument going on and it had been going on for 20 minutes and it was just getting worse and this was horrible and he couldn't stand to listen to it anymore and I needed to come down right away. And I interrupted him and I said, is the resident still there? And he said, yes. I said, could you put the resident on the phone? So the resident came to the phone and I said, hi, it's Howard Ovens. Do you know who I am? And he'd done his eMERGE rotation and he said, yes, I know who you are. I said, well, I'll try and help if I can. Can you give me a brief summary about this patient? And he effectively, in a couple of minutes, described for me an elderly man with multiple medical problems, acute and chronic, including several that were non-curable and recent deterioration. And I said, and you're trying to get a DNR order? He said, yes, that's right. I said, okay, let me speak to whoever's the head of the family. He handed the phone to the head of the family and I introduced myself. I said, do you know who I am? And they said, yes, Corey has said very many nice things about you. And I said, I've just heard the story, but from the information I have, it's pretty clear to me that he's very ill. Do you understand that? He said, yes, I understand that. I said, from everything I've heard, all the right things are being done. He's not responding. And frankly, if he were my father, I would not go further with intensive care unit or other interventions. I would really request that they take a comfort-oriented approach and just see how things go. But I don't think that moving him to the intensive care unit will improve his quality of life, make you happy. And that's what I would do if I was there, either as, a, as the physician or, or as a relative. He didn't ask me one question. He said, I see. Thank you very much. That's very helpful. And uh, they thanked me and I went back to sleep. Next day, I went up to the room to meet the people. I was treated like a conquering hero. The man was still alive. He lived another two days. The outpouring of gratitude that I got from this family was almost overwhelming for what had been a brief intervention. Point of the story is how some simple interventions can uh, really be so powerful in the right circumstances. So let's dissect that intervention that you had with that family. What are the key elements there that made it such that the family was was grateful and that it worked? I think one of them uh, would be that you were able to identify this individual as somebody who was loved within a family. You were able to state if this was my own family member. And very commonly, I think, that is really the only thing by which we can judge the interventions that we do. Do they seem reasonable? Would they be something that we would wish for those people who we love? And that connection that you made with the family right there told them that they were cared for and that you were looking out for their best interests. It does need to be a balanced approach because I think that one of the other things that Dr. Evans did very clearly, though, was give a, a strong, clear, unambiguous professional opinion. And many families value that as much as other aspects. And I think that that in our desire to include patients and families in decision-making, from time to time, we move too far towards the side of just providing options, every particular option on the table, and then you get to choose. Do you want the, the red pill or the blue pill, is the example used in Atul Gawande's book. So do you want to take the red pill or the blue pill? And, and there is still a role for you know what, I'm, I'm a physician and I've spent the time that I need to spend to learn about you. And my best advice is that the blue pill is the one you want. Um, the blue pill is the one I would have my mother take. And I think there's value in that. In a book that was reviewed in the Academic Life in EM book club, the author compared and contrasted end-of-life care in France and in America. In France, apparently the decision to withdraw care is made by the doctors, while in North America... It's ultimately made by the family of the patient. Now, in talking to families on both sides of the ocean, the author discovered that the French families coped better, felt less confused, and less angry, while the American families suffered more from feelings of doubt, guilt, and resentment because they sometimes felt that their decision was the cause for the patient's death. The author also did a study on informed choice where she found that patients were more satisfied when they understood their illness, regardless of whether they were given a choice about the treatment, and that if the doctor provided their opinion on the right course of action, 
they were more confident that withdrawal of care was the right course of action. What I took away from this was that we need to let patients know in a straightforward manner what our professional opinion is and what we would recommend if we were in their shoes. By only listing options and then letting the family make the decision on their own, we're doing them and the patient a disservice. I work at a very aggressive institution. We look after many, not just oncologic patients, but non-oncologic patients, where we can offer them VADs and ECMO, and it can continue. And sometimes we've, when we've put it on the table, it seems like for a family, it's a very difficult decision to make. And many families say to us that they would just appreciate having some insight from the physicians responsible to give them some direction about what they would feel would be the most potentially beneficial and least futile because to make that decision on their own is far too burdensome. And to drive home the point regarding having the physicians take responsibility to make decisions with the family, Dr. Evans has a personal story. 20 years ago, a friend of the family, a, a woman who I'd known since I was a child, was in my hospital with her husband who was dying of uh, uncurable neurodegenerative disorder. She understood that it was not treatable, and she had clearly understood that her husband was dying. I went in to visit one day, and I asked her how it was going, and she said, I didn't sleep last night. I said, why not? She said, I gave them permission to let him go yesterday. I said, what do you mean by that? They had approached her about a DNR order. They said, if his heart stops, what do you want us to do, or words to that effect? And she gave them the DNR order, and really felt guilty that she had given permission to to let him go in her, her own words. I explained to her that really that was the physician's advice and that it wasn't her decision. She could always argue with it, but it was really a medical decision and that there was nothing for her to feel guilty about. Despite that, it's 20 years later, every once in a while, when circumstances come up, she reminds me of what happened when her husband was ill and how it still haunts her to this day. Let's get on to the second part of this case, which was the resident mishandling the situation, saying, you know, do you want us to break your father's ribs doing CPR? And do you want us to do everything? And then the argument that ensued. How would you handle the situation with the resident who now comes back to you and says that this family is ridiculous and I give up and I don't know what to do? I spend time with the residents that I'm working with making sure that I that we talk about what the real risks to resuscitation are. And the punchline that I use is stop talking about broken ribs, right? The, the risk of resuscitation is not broken ribs. If you're doing resuscitations, if you're doing CPR correctly, you'll, you'll break ribs. It's not really a risk. It's, a, it's just going to happen. And it's not a reason not to resuscitate somebody who needs resuscitation. Uh, the real risks to resuscitation in the case that we've talked about here are around incomplete recovery, around prolonging a dying process, around uh, uncomfortable investigations and, and further complications from our medical intervention. Those are the real risks that, that families need to understand. And the real risks I think that doctors need to understand as they embark down one of these resuscitative pathways. Uh, and so I make sure that every resident leaves a rotation with me knowing not to talk about broken ribs. So one of the palliative care myths is that code status discussions should focus on descriptions of CPR like broken ribs, for example. You see, both patients and physicians often have unrealistic expectations of success because of Hollywood movies and such. So discussions should include information about overall prognosis and patient goals. Most people don't understand what do-everything means, so you need to take time to explain the different levels of care. Next, we're going to talk about DNR orders and the new concept of AND. Allow natural death. So I just want to get a little bit more into DNR orders. You know, something that's always bugged me is that as soon as a patient has a DNR order on their chart, they seem to be ignored by the treating physicians. They're the last patient to be seen on the consultant's list. They're sometimes undertreated. It's almost as if do not resuscitate means do not treat. 
What are your thoughts in terms of how DNR should be understood and how can we kind of spread the word in the hospital to ensure that we're doing really the right thing for the patient in terms of what real treatment they need? There really is no option not to treat. Every patient requires some degree of treatment. And in order to provide effective palliative care or very good comfort care, is actually incredibly effortful and takes a great deal of thought to ensure that you have looked after the symptom burden that the patient is presenting with. The entire language around DNR and and the resultant do not treat is completely unacceptable. At every level of care, there is an awful lot of care to be provided and intervention required. Okay, and that brings up the concept of rather than thinking of it in terms of DNR, do not resuscitate, thinking of it in terms of allow natural death. This seems to be sort of a movement that's just in the last few years. There's physicians out there who believe we should just get rid of DNR altogether and replace it with allow natural death. Can you just explain to us what the whole gist of allow natural death is and how you think we can integrate this into our practice? My understanding of the, the, the most significant part of the difference there is it's around applying positive language rather than negative language. It's about talking about what we will do and not what we won't do, which I think speaks to the point about, about all the active care, Shona, that you're talking about that will happen to patients. I make sure that, that when I'm talking to families, I don't get too caught up, frankly, on AND or DNR. If it comes up, we, we sort of discuss it, but I don't get into the nitty gritty of what the order will look like. I talk about being fully aggressive. And then I list what fully aggressive means. And in different scenarios, it means entirely different things. But I make sure that I use the words, you know, fully active treatment. And I do it with consultants too, right? So if I've had this conversation, I pick up the telephone to internal medicine or oncology or pediatrics or wherever the patient is going and talk about the fact that we will be fully aggressive. I'm already being fully aggressive with pain control or fluids or palliative care. And I make sure that both the consultants and the families hear that same message, In terms of the order writing, what we want is an order that basically ensures that should something happen to this patient, should they be found vital signs absent, we basically won't pull the fire alarm. Yet we need different language to talk with patients. So if I've had a goals of care discussion like I did with the case I told you about on the cell phone, I will go on after I've established with them, as Shona's described, comfort-oriented approach, I'll say, Oh, and by the way, just to make sure your wishes are observed and respected 24 hours a day, we'll be adding an order to your relative's record that indicates that the cardiac arrest process will not be activated, just so there's no mistake or misunderstanding. And usually people just nod and don't even ask a question. I think the the phraseology, do not resuscitate as an order to the team, is good as a way of talking to patients and families it doesn't really have a place. Now, DNR is sort of defined and understood as really three things. It's intubation, CPR, and defibrillation. How do you have that conversation with families about those three things in any particular situation? The institution that I work at, on our previous paperwork, there there was a checkbox list. It was a menu of NG tubes and intubation and central lines, and, mm-hmm. and it really allowed people to go through and, and individually pick one item off and leave others out, and I think created more problems than benefit. And we've moved towards having uh, fewer tick boxes. So we now have one that talks about A&D, allow natural death or full critical care. And there's two other sort of sub boxes. So, so full active medical care, including critical care and just full active medical care. And then a, and a period, a, a space for people to write in narratively what the goals of care are. What are, what are the conversations that took place? It's helpful because it allows for judgment right up until the very end, right? So it allows residents or, or physicians on call who are coming and reviewing a patient who's in crisis on a ward whom they may or may not know to use judgment and not feel compelled to, well, she did say she wanted an NG tube, but she didn't want an endotracheal tube, so I guess we'll put the NG in. It's more holistic, I think, perhaps, uh, than than maybe it used to be. Maybe I could share a recent experience I had from the other side of the fence with uh, my mother. My mom passed away uh, March 28th at the age of 94, and she had been on a classic frailty trajectory of uh, slow 
but inexorable decline over about three or four years. She was in an assisted living facility that was an excellent facility. And uh, as her decline advanced, I had suggested to him a few months before she died that I wanted it known that uh, they should call my cell phone 24 hours a day if there was any sort of crisis before they called 911. I didn't want any 911 calls without my involvement. I had talked about this with my my sister and my mother's uh, wishes were clear to me. The response was to send me an advance directive to fill out and it had a multiple choice selection. Do you want blood transfusion? Do you want uh, G-tube feeding? Do you want transfer to hospital? as well as the DNR question. And I really didn't know how to complete it because I could think of multiple situations where transfusion might be part of comfort-oriented care. If she broke her leg, I'd want her to go to the hospital and have a cast put on for comfort. And there was no way to convey that level of, of judgment, and nor was there a philosophical section, nor was there a place for me to write in please just call my cell phone before you call 911. So the advance directive was really not helpful in trying to get the institution to understand what it was that we wanted. I wanted the, the facility to understand that the family has taken a comfort-oriented decision and the son's available on cell phone 24-7. If you can't reach him, call his sister. That seems so simple, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so that's why I understand that we're, we have to give some advice in the environment we find ourselves in today. But to me, the solution ultimately is not more lawyers figuring out how to make advanced directive forms clearer and more specific. What I took away from that experience was that the advanced directive document is flawed in and of itself because what we really want is an understanding by patients, families, and care providers of a need for us to establish a goals of care and a philosophy that is contextual and allows the care team some guidance, but they're still going to have to use their clinical judgment as events unfold. We don't know exactly somebody's pathway through the final days, weeks, or months of of life. And there could be crises or complications that occur that require a thoughtful response within the parameters of comfort-oriented care that can't be specified in an advanced directive. On to case number two. A 63-year-old woman with advanced metastatic ovarian cancer to the lungs and brain, whose family has been told that they have a poor prognosis, is nonetheless on active chemotherapy and aggressive management by oncology. Now, studies show that 98% of oncology patients want to know their prognosis. I've personally always had a hard time understanding why cancer patients are often given the unrealistic hope and full-bore treatment by their oncologists. How does this sort of come about? What's the reason for it? How do you handle the situation where patients might have unrealistic expectations based on what another doctor has told them? I think this is a common presentation that we all see. And I think that oncology, unfortunately, probably gets a bit too much criticism in cases like this. What we know about the latest chemo drugs coming is that more and more of them are being approved for use in the last six months of life. They are applying the evidence as it applies to their specialty. That's important to recognize. I think that what also needs to be recognized, and I think it isn't recognized well enough yet, is that the addition of palliative care to those patients early on shows better outcomes even than lots of the latest chemo agents. Patients survive longer, their care is more manageable, and in fact, in many jurisdictions, cheaper, and the outcomes are better across every measurable domain for patients that get palliative care early on in the course of their illness. If palliative care was a drug, everybody would get it, right? And we would pay big money for it. Uh, And the beauty of good palliative care is, in fact, you don't have to pay big money for it. And so I think it speaks to the reason why, as a system, we need to be providing more of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess so then it's a myth that focusing on comfort sacrifices longevity, as you were saying, that it can actually prolong life. And that life is often free of the horrible side effects of the chemotherapy and you're concentrating on comfort. So the patient's going to be more comfortable. Part of the uh, framework that the oncologists find themselves in 
and families and patients is that for lots of different reasons, we have used the language of a battle, especially with cancer, but with other illnesses. And we talk about how courageous people are, their battle, their survivors. And uh, of course, we rally communities. Listen, I'm all for supporting research and supporting some of the work that some of our disease societies do and just driving people to care and helping their families. But these are industries and they survive and thrive on a paradigm which says we're battling cancer as a community by giving money to them. And then we put a lot of pressure on patients and families to be good soldiers. And uh, then they feel like they've let everyone down or giving up when they go to palliative care. And then in that framework, the oncologist has a very difficult job to try to communicate hope while still being realistic about the ability to cure or not cure. I think we have to be very good at preserving hope and showing patients that we're going to continue to be with them on their journey and support them and help them in every way we can. But right now, we don't have a cure for them and try to move away from this battle paradigm language that we use. And I think some of the studies you quoted that really show that there's always this false equation that is implied or, or explicit in these discussions, which suggests you have a choice between quantity and quality of life. And really, it could be that one choice gives you both quality and quantity, and the other choice gives you more pain and suffering and complications. So the oncologist is standing at one intersection point in this social structure, and we're standing at a slightly different intersection. Now, these are difficult conversations to have if the patient's never been told before that they're dying. That's a difficult conversation. In the emergency department, we're busy. It's sometimes hard to take the time to have that conversation. We kind of think, well, the next doctor will take care of it or someone else will take care of it. What are some of the barriers to telling patients that they're dying, and how do you suggest that we overcome these barriers? Sure. Often um, concealing the illness trajectory or allowing the prognosis to remain unspoken leads patients and families to continue to fight to the death and accepting or pursuing treatment that is unlikely to benefit them. And this is often under the guise of maintaining hope. So I do think in the emergency department, prognosis is a difficult thing to give. It's something that we all shy away from. And in fact, prognosis in all of medicine is something that is very poorly studied and very often not discussed. And yet we all have a very good sense as to whether a patient is going to do well or not. In the emergency room of all places, we make decisions all the time based on our judgment as to how well we think a patient is going to do or not do. And one of the questions that I teach our residents, but I think many people do, is to say, would you be at all surprised if this patient was to die during this hospitalization? And I think if you answer that question with a yes, or if you think that will this patient potentially represent and could they die within the next month, if you answer that question with a yes, then you are in many ways bound to have a more difficult conversation with that family to understand what their perception of their disease is. And I think that while it seems like it may be not the job of the emergency physician, patients present in crisis all the time to us. And we either accept that as an opportunity to further address what their understanding and goals are for the treatment of their disease and to address what the potential benefit or risk would be for further treatment or additional intervention. So we've established that telling the patient their prognosis is within the realm of responsibility of ED docs and why it might be important for patients to know their prognosis. I understand that there's a couple different models out there that can help us understand how better to prognosticate. There's kind of two roads to death, so to speak, in this model. One is sort of the usual road where the patient gets sleepy and lethargic and obtunded and then comatose and then they die. And the other road is that they're restless and confused and then they start hallucinating and they're delirious and they might go on to have seizures even. And that that's a longer, more difficult road to death. And so that the latter patient would take a longer time, more than just your shift to die. Okay, so that kind of model can help in sort of the immediate 
eight-hour block that's in front of you. I understand that there's a model that shows the trajectory of death in different categories and that this can help more on a broad level for patients over weeks or months or, or days help you prognosticate a bit better. Dr. Evans, can you just describe that model of the trajectory of illness? Right. So the four trajectories uh, that have been classically described include first the uh, sudden death trajectory where you're going along just fine. You haven't been ill at all, nothing to predict, anything bad happening. And then suddenly you become critically ill or injured and die. This could be anything from a sudden unheralded MI to a traumatic injury, a fall, an assault, etc. The other three are a little different. Uh, They're more gradual. And um, I think the importance of them for this discussion is because locating patients on this trajectory can help us Uh, think a little bit more in an organized fashion explicitly about that gestalt you get in the resus room like we had in case one where you get a thumbnail from the paramedics you take one glance at a fairly uh, malnourished looking person who you can tell hasn't been out of bed in a long time and what does that gestalt mean so the other three trajectories break down into fairly equal proportions Uh, the first one is the uh, frailty trajectory the person who just dies of old age. Uh, It's a very slow, gradual, but inexorable decline and um, includes along the way decreased mobility, decreased uh, energy, and sometimes decreased uh, cognition. The other one is uh, cancer, where you get a diagnosis of an illness. It, It could be something else other than cancer, but most commonly it's cancer, where you get an incurable diagnosis and uh, you decline slowly at first and then precipitously towards the end. And the third one is organ failure. This could be COPD, could be heart failure, could be renal failure, liver failure. And typically these patients have a gradual decline that um, has a few perturbations along it due to acute exacerbations, which bring them close to death, but from which they can be rescued, but usually not back to the same place on the baseline. So each time the person with heart failure comes in, we may diurese them successfully and adjust their meds, but they won't usually return quite fully to where they were before that admission. Same thing with the COPD patient. And so each time you have to decide if they're having an exacerbation of their organ failure, whether this is a salvageable opportunity or not, and how far the patient and family want you to go in trying to do that. Recently, I looked after a lady, and I'll just call her Mrs. Smith, but Mrs. Smith came in in significant heart failure. And by our medical record, I could see that she had been in a month prior, three weeks prior to that, a month prior to that. And I can see from the interventions that had been done, she'd had repeat cardiac catheterization, she'd had adjustments to her medical care. But the reality was, is that we couldn't stop her from representing because she was feeling very dyspneic and had significantly diminished exercise tolerance. And just what Dr. Evans said, every time we got her better, she improved, but never to the previous baseline. So I said, Mrs. Smith, can you tell me what is it that you're looking forward to? And she said, well, my son is coming this summer to visit with my grandchildren, and I am really looking forward to that. And at her bedside was her granddaughter, and she said, oh, Granny, I'm not sure that's going to happen because finances are a little bit tight. You know, he might not be able to come. Maybe what he'll do is come for Christmas. And, you know, I I actually wrote out the trajectory or showed them just to give them a graphic sort of representation of what's been happening to Mrs. Smith. The point was really, I think that if your son can come this summer with your grandchildren, he should, because I'm not sure, not that maybe she might not be here, but she might not be here at Christmas. And she may not, she may be too infirm or hospitalized to be able to enjoy those grandchildren. And so... For me, that case allowed me to teach the residents what the ripple effect is of the decisions that happen or the things that we say to families and patients in the emergency room. They're profound, and we just often forget to put that back in the context of an individual within their own family.
we're going to have those trajectories in image form on the website uh, in the written summary for people to go over. I find it is really helpful to actually see the the image of that trajectory. What about the prognostic signs at the very end of life? You know, if we've been practicing as long as Dr. Ovens have, we kind of intuitively know what these signs are. For those listeners out there who are just starting their practice, what clues on physical exam can give us an idea that the patient is near death besides the obvious crashing patient? The things that that tell me that death is imminent, that it's time for families to gather, are very clearly um, hypotensive patients, uh, particularly hypotension with delirium, the death rattle uh, that's talked about in the books. I've seen that not be as helpful sometimes uh, in my experience, that that can sometimes last for days and it can even come and go a little bit. Cyanosis for me and agonal breathing. Those signs are, are quite clearly meaning that death is imminent. As you stand in your resuscitation bay or in your acute area, very commonly you'll have a patient present to you and you get initial blood gas and it, it t- takes you those few minutes to be able to piece together any bit of history. You get the thumbnail from EMS, you try to log on and that blood gas is just profound. Like it tells you that this patient is in the throes of actively trying to die. You know, the pH is 6.91, the lactate is 19, the K is 11. The more junior you are as a physician starting out, those are very frightening patients to present because you look at that blood gas and you think, oh my goodness, what is it that I've got to do for this patient? And it's only when you've had time and experience and you're able to piece all of that information together in a quick manner that you know that the focus of your care really needs to be that of comfort focus. So I, while all those physical signs are so important, I commonly find that we get a blood gas first because the patient is presented to the acute side and it becomes very clear sort of thereafter. Those are great points, Shona. We've focused a lot on the discussion around decision-making at the front end of the eMERGE visit, but there will be patients who already have chosen a pathway or, as a result of our discussion, choose a comfort-oriented pathway. And then at least till the end of our shift or a bed is found, we have to manage the dying process for them, and we have to be good at it. And among the things that are really key are standing down on investigations and physiological monitoring, not just because it gets in the way of touching and being with the patients, but because it's so difficult for our staff not to react to those numbers. And we just have to take those numbers away so we can focus on what's important in these in these situations. Yeah, that's so true. What do you do in the situation when a patient flat out asks you, what's my prognosis? How long do I have to live? How do you handle that situation? So before I get into a discussion of the explicit question that's on the table, I would first come back to what's the hidden agenda for the patient and explore why they're asking. So some open-ended or patient-centered questions that you could use to move that discussion forward are, what are you afraid of? If you were to die tomorrow, what's it important for us to help you accomplish today? What other unfinished business do you have? What's most important to you now? If you were going to die in the next couple of weeks, where would you want to spend your time? And I think the answers to those questions will often take you away from the focus of two weeks versus two months uh, and the numbers and to what the real issues that need to be addressed are for establishing goals of care. I agree, Dr. Evans. I think sometimes when people ask that question, it's not so much that they are expecting a defined prognosis, but they are really looking for what is going to happen to them. What will the process be? What suffering will they have to endure? Where do they see their needs being met? And perhaps that is just where we can offer them some reassurance or links to other supports within our institution or community. For example, a unit perhaps like where Dr. Miller works. That to me really is the distinction, the difference between palliative care and end of life management uh, in the eMERGE. They are, in my mind, distinct concepts. I think they need to be distinct concepts for patients that palliative care is not necessarily about imminent end of life. It can be a long process. It can it can be a year. It can be years of managing symptoms and, and moving 
closer towards death, certainly, but not futility. And I think that end-of-life management in the ED, part of this eight-hour prognosis, if you will, just different sides of the same coin, but, but distinctly different. We're going to move on to the final section of the podcast and talk about symptom management, some practical clinical pearls. So we talked a little bit about the very end-of-life care, and I want to talk a little bit more about how to manage symptoms at the very end of life that we never really get taught in emergency medicine to do, but that are very important. Let's say your end-stage cancer patient now has the death rattle and you know the patient only has a few hours left to live based on your clinical assessment. And that can be a very stressful situation for you, for the family, for the patient. Let's say you've counseled the family, everyone's in agreement about the goals of care, what are some of the steps that you take? What are some of the things that you do to help to get the environment such that it's working for everybody? I start certainly with a conversation with the nurses to make sure that they're aware of decisions that have been made and the direction we're moving in. And, and then I write some very simple orders for them. I write move to private room and I, uh, I ask them to discontinue the monitors in a gradual process, right? I try and make this not all of a sudden turning out the lights, but but in a gradual way, discontinuing monitors, quieting the room, maybe dimming the lights if it's possible, bringing in some extra furniture for family to sit on. I make sure that when I speak to the family, I say things like it's okay to hold her hand. But from specific orders, I write scopolamine, 0.4 milligrams IV. If that's not possible because we don't have the IV uh, or or scopolamine, I suppose, you can use home atropine drops uh, from the ENT cart, two of those under her tongue. Uh, You want a patient to be pretty sedated for that. That can be a little uncomfortable if they're still awake, but the case you gave us was with a death rattle, and that usually connotates that a patient is comatose or semi-comatose. Um, I make sure that there's pain orders written. In this case, if we suggested that she was a narcotic naive, uh, even small doses of morphine, again, IV sub-Q, uh, would be fine. And that would be, uh, you know, 0.5 to, to 2 milligrams titrated frequently, but following the, the rule of, of start low and go slow. Um, but go slow to me means small incremental increases in dose but on a reasonably frequent basis. This is not someone who you want to reassess every four hours. This is someone who you reassess every 15 minutes. The only other thing that I would add, Paul, is that I would see if the family were interested in having pastoral care or social work be of some assistance, both to just contact other family members that may wish to be present, but also just to have a presence in the room. If there is family of spirituality, trying to obtain a priest or somebody for them may also be of some benefit. That's very helpful. And from my administrative perspective, I think there's a lot of value in taking important uh, steps like these and putting them in a pre-printed order set for the staff. First of all, it signals to everybody that you are embracing this as what part of our role and an important function of the emergency department, and that's important enough that we need to do some planning to do it right. Secondly, the order set's just a very convenient way to get a consistent approach that doesn't omit anything because people forgot it. I want to talk a little bit about symptom management at the end of life. Given that one of the goals of end of life care is to minimize suffering and make the patient as comfortable as possible, I just want to run through for our listeners how to manage the big three common symptoms that we see near the end of life, pain, dyspnea, and terminal delirium. Let's start with pain. So the most important step for me is to start with a narcotic history or at least an analgesia history to understand very specifically and in as much detail as I can what they're on and how often they're taking it and how they're using it. And then once I have that information in an oncology population, it's very commonly fairly high doses of hydromorphone. And once I understand how they're using their breakthroughs in particular uh, and how much medication they're on, then what I suggest um, and what I do all the time is use a narcotic converting calculator. Uh, They're easily accessible online. Find one that you're comfortable with. And I put the the doses in there and I convert them to... uh, equivalent doses of morphine because the eMERGE staff that I work with are most comfortable with morphine. And I make sure that the amount of medicine that I'm going to give them, presumably a different route, because I'm going to use sub-Q or IV medications rather than oral, is an equivalent and reasonable dose. And by equivalent and reasonable, what I mean is it, it reflects the amount that they're already on. When switching between oral and IV medications, recommendations very commonly are to reduce the dose by 25%. 
Uh, I think it's a reasonable thing to think about. In a patient that's in a lot of distress, I must say, I often don't reduce it by quite that much because I, I want the extra benefit. I want the extra analgesia. And in that case, I would switch. If they're coming in on hydromorphone, I would give them the exact same equivalent amount considering the other route. So I'm going to IV or sub Q and it started administering that on a Q15 to Q30 minute basis. The visual analog scale is very helpful and you get a true sense when you've been treating the patient and you're vigilant to go back at that 15 or 30 minute interval to ensure that it your patient actually is more comfortable um, because the doses that you may be alluding to, Paul, sometimes can be quite high for our oncologic population of patients. And while our nurses are very comfortable administering narcotics by the IV route, sometimes the doses that we are asking them to give are beyond their comfort, um, appropriate for our patient, but sometimes beyond their comfort. So I make sure as the responsible physician that I am there to do the reassessment kind of at 15 or 30 minute intervals until we've achieved comfort in that patient. For people that either don't have or aren't comfortable with the visual analog scale, another very helpful question I find is to ask the question, do you want more pain medicines? <laughs> very clearly. And the answer is yes or no, and, and I listen to them. In the imminently dying patient in the emergency department, in addition to opiates that we might use to help get their pain under control, are there any role for any other medications, adjunctive medications? If there are no real contraindications, and sometimes at the end of life there really aren't to anti-inflammatory, sometimes those can have a role. Toradol via the IV route can be very effective. But a medication that we don't often consider but can be very helpful and has multiple properties, so including that of being very good for nausea, if that is also a strong or prominent feature of our patient, would be that of dexamethasone. And I will use um, 10 milligrams of dexamethasone, anywhere between 8 to 10 milligrams IV initially. And then I will most typically dose 4 milligrams of dexamethasone TID. I hear eMERGE docs asking me a lot about the role of ketamine. I'm hesitant around ketamine, to be real honest with you. I use it a lot in other scenarios. But here, what I found from my experience is that the added benefit of it is marginal at best, that it's fraught with issues of making patients more confused, and that depending on where I'm going to hand this patient off to, including ketamine in their care plan, then limits options quite dramatically. And so um, I have to think further down the path about, so who else is going to carry on with this ketamine if it's successful? Having said that, for uh, patients that really are failing opiates or are really out of control uh, in terms of delirium, they need some sedation, Benzels would be the first choice, but if I'm going to engage ketamine, we're talking about a low dose, uh, sub-dissociative, and again, with, with frequent titration. But I would say that it's n not my first, second, or third line agent. So that's good to know that even though there are some, I understand, small studies that it's used as an adjunctive medication with opiates for end of life, that in your experience, you don't recommend it. Okay, let's move on from pain to dyspnea. You know, dyspnea is sort of the second big ticket item after pain when it comes to symptom management in end of life care. There is perhaps nothing more disconcerting for family members than seeing their loved ones struggling to breathe. Can you run through for us what the ED management of dyspnea at the end of life is? The first line medications really would be that of opioids again. Instead of dosing for pain management, it's more prudent to actually use a much smaller dose of an opioid. Very typically, that dose would be even as small as 0.5 milligrams, up to about 2 milligrams. For pain, we might be wanting to reassess the intervention of the opioid every 15 to 30 minutes. For dyspnea, we know we're in for a little bit of the longer haul, and uh, we would be using very small doses increasing incrementally as required, but using those medications very regularly. So around the clock, 0.5 to 2 milligrams every six hours might be how we would manage just purely dyspnea. Okay. So the first line medication for pain and for dyspnea are opioids. What about the notion that opioids actually hasten death? Is that a, a myth? So n no evidence, of course, that, that opioids uh, hasten death. 
and good evidence that this principle of double effect is really very helpful. And the principle of double effect is that, well, uh, the opioids in these cases will help treat the primary symptoms, you might end up with a secondary symptom like respiratory depression that you're not interested in, but that the benefit is still much larger than any risk could possibly be. In fact, I believe there was a Cochrane review on that a few years ago. And because that is a common misconception of physicians and actually a a great fear of physicians that they will somehow hasten death by administering appropriate doses of opioids. And when using opioids for dyspnea, there was evidence that the PaCO2 increased, but not by greater than five, and that at no point did it hasten death. So I have spoke with pulmonologists who, in the face of patients dying of pulmonary disease and significant dyspnea, have been so afraid to give opioids for that reason. I can understand why emergency physicians may also be somewhat hesitant, but I think the appropriate thing is to know that you are managing the symptoms and in no way are you going to cause an increased risk to this patient succumbing sooner than they would have. One of the other teaching points that I learned uh, as I started to do more palliative care that I think is really critical for eMERGE docs to understand because it's not well represented in, in what we read typically is around the issue of narcotic toxicity. And by narcotic toxicity for palliative care patients, we're not talking about respiratory depression. We're talking about the buildup of metabolites and systems that are not working well. And the reasonably profound symptoms that patients can get as they escalate their doses of narcotic and trying to deal with a pain crisis usually. And those symptoms in particular are myoclonus, uncontrolled pain, agitation. And so I encourage everybody to look for myoclonus in particular in these patients, particularly in a pain crisis. Well, that seems totally counterintuitive. So the opiate toxicity at the end of life, the more morphine, say, you're giving, you're looking out for signs of myoclonus. You're looking out for these signs of agitation with more morphine. Yep. And it's, and Anton, it's not, it's not always at the end of life. The patients that I see tend to be quite young and are on really big doses of narcotic to deal with pain crisis. And when you can get this narcotic toxicity under control, uh, in an inpatient setting, when you can get it under control, these are the patients that go home, right? To carry on with their palliative care at home. Let's continue talking about dyspnea at the end of life. So opiates are your kind of go-to first line medication. What are some other things we can do to help with that awful dyspneic end-of-life situation? We see several patients that pass away from cystic fibrosis. And it sounds a little archaic, but actually to use a bedside fan if you can find one and to have that blow air directly to the patient's face. And I've actually used that with patients that are even on BiPAP. So BiPAP in and of itself sometimes can be very helpful and can be somewhere that we go to for symptom control in patients with severe dyspnea. There is a reflex that allows you to no longer feel dyspneic or to improve your sensation of dyspnea. So your air hunger is lessened with the presence of the fan blowing. Well, a simple technique. I understand there's actually an RCT that mm-hmm. showed that the, that the perception of shortness of breath was actually significantly lower in patients who got a fan compared to patients who didn't. Yeah. Hmm. Further along this line, right, that we've already talked about at length around doing everything for these patients would be interventions like a blood transfusion for the profoundly anemic and dyspneic patient. It's a trial agent. You give them a a transfusion to see if it helps their dyspnea. If it does, then that's helpful. And if it doesn't, then certainly you would stop. There's no hemoglobin measure at that point. It's all about symptom control. What about oxygen? We've been talking about dyspnea and shortness of breath. Does oxygen have a role in in this end-of-life situation? It doesn't change the the eventual outcome, but for many patients, it does provide additional comfort. I think intuitively, uh, when people are feeling short of breath or when a family is concerned that their loved one is short of breath, that they would think that oxygen would offer the greatest amount of comfort. But the evidence really does show that it does not. Saying that, there are situations where it does provide some comfort. And I have had young patients on high flow oxygen. And again, it may just be that forceful air, but it has provided considerable comfort. Sometimes for the family, if the patient is not bothered by it, then there may be some benefit to offering the intervention for the comfort of the family. So we've talked about pain control. We've talked about dyspnea and the dying patient. What about patients who are moaning and groaning and grimacing, who are restless and really agitated, In other words, how do we manage the end-of-life patient who's displaying signs of so-called terminal delirium? 
So terminal delirium is, is really very common. And I think that uh, it's also sometimes a little bit tricky to diagnose because it looks a lot like a pain crisis. It looks a lot like anxiety. And there can be multiple players all at the same time. But for patients that are not responding well enough to narcotics um, and are still agitated, it's also a very difficult phenomenon for families to watch. It is the worst possible death. It's, it's what people are afraid of when it comes to dying. And so it's something that needs to be treated aggressively and needs to be treated early. Um, and the mainstay for me there would be IV or subcutaneous benzodiazepines. Again, one of those benefits that we have in the eMERGE of being familiar and able to use a drug like Versed, um, which isn't as common in other parts of the hospital. And so in a case like this, uh, again, for an adult, I would start with uh, somewhere between one and four milligrams of Versed. And that would be on a sort of Q30 to Q1 hour basis with frequent reassessments. There are other drugs to consider when the benzos don't work. Yeah, my next line of therapy would be to consider haloperidol, and I would dose that with a 2.5 milligrams initially, always being able to titrate up, and I would again be reassessing probably every half hour to an hour to see how effective that was. To wrap it up, We've talked about the evolution of end-of-life care in the emergency department and how it, it's starting to change. What do you see as the future of end-of-life care in emergency medicine? I personally really hope that uh, and, and predict that a glimpse of the future can come from reading Atul Gawande's uh, excellent book, Being Mortal. I know we've all read it. Paul's quoted from it today, actually. And uh, his genius is that he's very articulate and able to translate issues to a broad audience that extends from the lay public through to practitioners, through to policymakers, all in one book. If you haven't read Being Mortal, I, I think it's an important book to read that really talks about a paradigm shift in how we view end-of-life care personally and as healthcare providers moving away from the advanced directive movement and uh, the struggle over autonomy towards a shared understanding of what makes a meaningful life and a good death. There is such a pertinence to having a palliative care skill set for all emergency physicians because we are universally always open, right? People will always present to us, always have needs, and we should be able to meet those because we have the skill set, and I believe every emergency physician has the desire. And this month's quote of the month is from Hippocrates. Cure sometimes, treat often, and comfort always. So until next time, Take it easy.